Discover the tips and strategies that will help you achieve your retirement goals. I'm your host, James Canole, and this is the podcast dedicated to helping you retire well. It all starts right here on Ready for Retirement. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Ready for Retirement. I'm your host, James Canole. On today's episode, we're going to talk about something that can seem fairly basic when you look at it very high level, but actually is really important. And actually, there's some nuances to it that most people I don't think fully take into account. So today's episode is all about rebalancing, and it's based upon a question that came in from Dave. Dave said this. He submitted a question and said, if I'm diversified in an all-stock portfolio and the market tanks, do you continue to rebalance your portfolio to your original diversification? I hope that makes sense. Let's say your large cap growth stock goes down 30% and your international stock is flat. Do I rebalance to add a greater amount to large cap growth because my portfolio would be outside of my original diversification? Thank you for your time. All right. Well, Dave, thank you for that question. And I think with this question, there's going to be a straightforward answer and then there's going to be a more nuanced answer. And so we'll explore both of those. So let's start with this. Why do we rebalance in the first place? Well, we rebalance because it helps to keep the risk parameters of our portfolio in place. Typically, if you're going to have a portfolio, let's say it's 50% stocks, 50% bonds, just to use a simple example. If you never rebalance, and let's say you started that 50-50 portfolio in 2009, at the beginning of the bull market that we're currently in. Well, if you had started then, your portfolio would definitely not be a 50-50 portfolio anymore. A 50-50 portfolio is very pretty balanced. You might call it slightly above conservative portfolio, but had you not rebalanced, that might look easily like a 70, 80 plus percent stock portfolio with only maybe 20, 25, 30% or so in bonds, depending on how that portfolio was invested over time. So when you look at that, all of a sudden an 80, 20 portfolio, 80% stocks, 20% bonds is a whole lot more aggressive than a 50, 50 portfolio is. So the reason that you rebalance is one, it can increase return potential depending on what type of portfolio you're starting with. But for most people, the real reason is to maintain some risk preferences or some risk parameters within their portfolio. Everyone typically says, or a lot of people typically say, definitely not everyone, but a lot of people typically say, oh, you rebalance because it increases return and decreases risk. It's not actually fully true. If we go back to that 50-50 portfolio, if you were just to let that portfolio ride, by rebalancing, you're actually decreasing the return potential over time. And the reason for that is if you let that portfolio grow from a 50-50 to say an 80-20, an 80-20 portfolio is probably going to do a whole lot better than that 50-50 portfolio would do over time. But the 80-20 portfolio is going to be a lot more risky. There's going to be a lot more ups and downs. And if you had a 50-50 portfolio because you're not comfortable being more aggressive, you're probably not going to be very comfortable in an 80-20 portfolio. So as you're looking at that, you're not doing that rebalance because you're expecting that to increase your performance. You're doing that rebalance because you're trying to maintain some level of risk in your portfolio. And you're trying not to go above or exceed a certain level of risk in your portfolio. Now, if you are in an all-stock portfolio, there are cases where actually rebalancing does increase your returns. Doesn't necessarily decrease your risk a whole lot. Could potentially a little bit, but if you're in an all-stock portfolio, that's where rebalancing actually can enhance your returns. Because let's say you have international stocks and U.S. stocks, just for a simple example. And let's just assume that both of them grow by 10% on average. Well, if your U.S. stocks do really well, and that grows to a higher percentage of your portfolio, 
And so you sell some of your U.S. stocks to buy some of the international stocks. Well, when international stocks recover and U.S. stocks maybe don't do as well in the next cycle, you have more of your money in the thing that's doing better and less of your money in the thing that's doing worse. Now, if you could predict the timing of when those cycles are going to happen, this would be very easy and you'd be a very, very, very wealthy person. Unfortunately, no one can predict that timing perfectly. But if you consistently rebalance along some of the parameters we'll talk about today, that's where rebalancing can increase your returns in an all-stock portfolio. So when people say you do this because it increases returns and it decreases risk, not necessarily. Depending on what your original makeup is, it typically either helps to increase returns or it helps to decrease risk. It's usually not doing both. But that is what you want to be doing rebalancing for. That's why we rebalance. Let's now talk about the ways that you rebalance. So again, rebalancing is just taking from the investment or the asset class that's gone up in value, not fully selling out of it, but selling out of a piece of it to buy an asset class that's gone down. If we go back to our example, let's now assume that you have a 50-50 portfolio, and I'm going to use the same example a few times, but now I'm going to assume part is stocks, part is bonds. If you have a 50-50 portfolio and that grows to 60% stocks, 40% bonds, what a rebalance would do is it would say, okay, let's sell 10% of the stocks to buy 10% in bonds, not 10% of the stock portion or bond portion, but 10% of the overall portfolio. So essentially, you're taking that 60-40 portfolio and bringing it back to that 50-50. So you're taking what the actual allocation is, and you're implementing the trades that are needed to bring the target allocation into alignment. The first way that people typically think about doing this is to do what's just called a calendar rebalance. What a calendar rebalance does is it says, okay, I'm going to come up with my portfolio, and I'm going to allocate the right amount to stocks or bonds or whatever it is for my specific goals. Great. Well, we know that's going to drift. So how do we make sure that we're keeping that portfolio mix in alignment? Some people say once a year, I'm going to rebalance this or once a quarter, I'm going to rebalance that. What that means is literally once every single year, either they have a reminder on their end or their portfolio management tool or provider that they're using offers the ability to do this. But once a year, the portfolio management tool or their spreadsheet or however they do it will look at the actual allocation. So what's the actual percentage of different types of stocks and bonds compared to the target allocation? And it will make trades. So it will sell from some of the investments that have gone up to buy some of the investments that have gone down to bring the actual allocation back in alignment with the target allocation. So that's calendar rebalancing. And over time, it's not bad. That's going to ensure your portfolio doesn't run too wildly out of place. But here's just some of the challenges with it. What if every investment performed the same? So what if you had stocks and bonds and they were both up 5% on the year? Well, you're going to run a rebalance, but you really don't need to. Now, it doesn't hurt to run a rebalance unless there's tax implications for doing so. If this isn't a non-retirement account or if there's trading or transaction costs to do so, which ideally there aren't. But if you are doing that, at best, it's not helping you. And at worst, maybe it's triggering some tax implications or some costs that you shouldn't be paying. So on one hand, if you're just doing it on the calendar, on the regular date every year or every quarter, you may not actually need to do a rebalance if the investments haven't drifted enough. Or you may run into another problem of what if I should have rebalanced sooner? You know, let's say that you on January 1st of every year, you redo this rebalance. So you bring your allocation from whatever it's turned into back to 50% stocks, 50% bonds. Well, let's go back to 2020. 
say on January 1st, 2020, you rebalanced your portfolio back to 50% stock, 50% bonds. Well, not too long after that, by the middle or end of February, the stock market started to nosedive. That was just right at the beginning of COVID and shutdowns and unemployment and yada yada. Well, your stock portfolio would have gone down probably 30, 35% or more over a very short period of time. Well, in that moment, if you're only rebalancing based upon a calendar date, you're not rebalancing, even as the mix of stocks and bonds has shifted pretty dramatically in a pretty short period of time. And as fast as things went down, they recovered almost equally as fast. So by the time that your next scheduled rebalance came into play on January 1st, 2021, your stocks had outperformed your bonds. So you look at that and you say, okay, calendar rebalancing is going to be okay in the sense that it's going to ensure that the portfolio doesn't get way too out of alignment, but it might miss some wonderful opportunities to rebalance in the midst of things like COVID. How do you rebalance? And it would be great if you knew exactly when the market was going to bottom out to say, okay, great. Let's rebalance on March 23rd of 2020 to sell some of our bonds to buy some of our stocks. That would have been wonderful if you could predicted it. Now, no one can predict it, but if you rebalance not based upon a calendar date, but based upon, call it a percentage of your portfolio or based upon rebalance thresholds or rebalance bands, that's probably a lot more effective in that scenario. So what does that mean to rebalance based upon rebalance thresholds? Well, when you're doing that, it typically takes some software to do it most effectively, but instead of rebalancing on one single calendar date per year, per quarter, or however often you set that frequency up, you're rebalancing based upon how far your portfolio has shifted from its target allocation. So let's say that you're 50% stocks, 50% bonds, to go back to this example. Well, if you have a million dollar portfolio, that's $500,000 that you have in stocks, and it's $500,000 that you have in bonds. Let's assume the stock market drops 40% and bonds increase 10%. Well, now all of a sudden, that $500,000 in stocks turns to $300,000 in stocks, and that $500,000 in bonds turns to $550,000 in bonds. So your total portfolio has dropped from $1 million to $850,000, but instead of being 50% stocks and 50% bonds still, it's now 35% stocks and 65% bonds when you look at the makeup of that $850,000. So as you look at that, whether it's on the date of the annual rebalance that you're doing this or some date in between, you look at that and you say, okay, this is no longer the 50-50 portfolio that I wanted. This is no longer the portfolio that I started with. This is going to trigger a rebalance. And it triggers a rebalance based upon some threshold. So for example, maybe you set a 10% threshold in either direction. So if stocks started at 50%, well, as soon as they shift 10%, which doesn't mean going from 50 to 60 or 50 to 40. That would actually be a 20% shift. A 10% shift is okay. If stocks are 50%, 10% of 50% is 5%. So if that 50% moves 5% in either direction, so up to 55 or down to 45, what that does is it triggers a rebalance. So you don't want to rebalance too frequently. If you set too narrow of a threshold, you're just trading every single day. Because every day stocks and bonds are going to be moving, but you want to set the rebalance thresholds wide enough to give time for things to perform and to grow, but narrow enough to the point that you're not letting these things grow too wildly or too unchecked. So let's use that 10%, for example, again. 
what you would do is you would rebalance as soon as, not a calendar date, but as soon as stocks dropped to 45% or less or increased to 55% or more. Now, you'd also be doing the same thing on the bond side. You would be implementing a rebalance if bonds ever increased over 55% or decreased to under 45% if you're starting with that 50-50 allocation. So this is why I say that it's helpful to have some software to help with this because this is something that software can do great. Every single day, it can monitor the portfolio to say, has it shifted outside of the target allocation? If so, great. Here's a triggered rebalance or here it's triggering an alert that says you should rebalance or maybe it's even just doing it for you. If you don't have that alert, then you're having to manually check every day and run some calculations to say, okay, what's the stock portion? What's the bond portion? Divide this by that. It just gets a little bit more cumbersome. But this is typically a better way, in my opinion, than calendar rebalancing because calendar is just some arbitrary time versus threshold rebalancing. It's ensuring your portfolio doesn't cross certain thresholds. So to go back to the question that Dave originally submitted that kicked off this episode is he said this. He said, let's say your large cap growth stock goes down 30% and your international stock is flat. Do I rebalance to add a greater amount to large cap growth because my portfolio would be outside my original diversification? So to this, I would say, depending on the thresholds that you set, yes. Now, if you set really wide thresholds, no, but let's look at an example. I don't know the makeup of this overall portfolio. And this is probably just a hypothetical portfolio. But let's just assume, so he's mentioning large cap growth stocks and he's mentioning international stocks. Let's assume he has half of his portfolio in large cap growth and half of his portfolio in international. Well, if there's a 30% decline in the large cap growth portion of Dave's portfolio and the international portion stays flat, what that means when you actually run the math of it is now there's a 41% allocation to large cap growth stocks and a 59% allocation to international stocks. So even though international was flat, it now represents a bigger portion of the portfolio because the other portion of the portfolio declined. So he's now in a 41.59 portfolio, which is a drift of 18%. Got 18 because 41 is nine points away from 50%. So what you have to do is divide 9% by 50% to say, okay, you're 18% away from your target allocation. So this is where I say, depending on the thresholds that you set, yes, this may potentially trigger a rebalance. If Dave had set a 10% threshold, you would rebalance here because 18% is greater than 10. In fact, you probably would have rebalanced before it got to this point. If you were to set a 15% threshold, you would also rebalance because the drift here again is 18%. If it was a 20% threshold, you would not yet actually rebalance. So you're at an 18% drift. You're not yet at the allocation or at that threshold that would trigger that rebalance, which is where Dave is talking about here. Depending on the research you look at, I know a lot of people are saying, okay, well, James, what's better? Is it 10%, 15%, 50%? What's the right number? There's a lot of research around this. Anywhere between 10% and 20% is generally what that research shows is most effective. The reason for that is you don't want to rebalance too frequently. There's just momentum that you have to factor in. So if something's running, you don't want to sell out of that thing that's running too early. It's almost like you want to give it some room to run before keeping it in check and pulling it back. But if something's running, you don't want to let it run too long because if you do, chances are good it might fall before you're able to do that rebalance. So 10 to 20% tends to be where a lot of the research shows this might be most effective, but it depends upon your situation and depends upon 
your comfort level or risk tolerance of are you okay with a portfolio deviating that amount or do you want to do it by more? Now, I've been using 50-50 allocations as an example here so far. Not everything is going to be 50% of your portfolio. And in fact, that only works if you only have two asset classes in your entire portfolio. Most people don't. Most people have more. So they might be looking at large cap stocks, small cap stocks, international stocks, emerging market stocks, real estate. They might look at bonds. They might look at different types of bonds. So there's going to be multiple asset classes typically in a portfolio. And let's say that we said that you had a 10% allocation to small companies, for example. Well, if you assign a 20% drift to that, what that means is if that 10% grows to 12 or decreases to 8 it's anything outside of those parameters that represents or that triggers a rebalance. Anything within those parameters, so if that small cap allocation was anywhere between 8 and 12%, it wouldn't yet trigger a rebalance. So those are the two main ones that people talk about is calendar rebalancing or threshold rebalancing, which you might also just think of as percentage of portfolio rebalancing. To me, if I'm choosing between the two, the threshold or percentage of portfolio rebalancing is more effective because it's not based upon arbitrary dates. It's based upon how the portfolio is actually performing and making sure that you're bringing it back into alignment. But there is another option that I sometimes like even more than either of these. It is somewhat this third option. It's kind of a variation of something called constant proportion portfolio insurance. And what constant proportion portfolio insurance is, is something that's pretty technical. You have something called a cushion value and a multiplier, and you have a risk account and a safety account, and it has to do with a lot of formulas, but really what it comes down to is there's a risk account and a safety account. And we're not going to get too detailed in this. There's no need to, but I want to explain the basic principles. And what you have is you have a safety account that's kind of like your cushion value. Uh, we want to ensure our portfolio never drops or this account never drops below certain some certain value. Then what you have is the risk account. So while the safety account is very conservatively invested, the risk account is going to be leveraged and it's going to be leveraged with future holdings in order to protect from some of the downside of having a equity exposure or stock exposure. And so you're going to invest that side more aggressively, but also have some future holdings with it. And it's going to be more of a dynamic shift between the two accounts based upon the economic environment. This is something that a lot of insurance companies will do, which no individual is going to do to that extent. It just, it's going to cause more brain damage and probably cost more, both in terms of time and money to actually implement it than it's worth. But you can take the same principles. The principle of it to me is do we have an amount that we need to protect? Let's call that the cushion amount. Then the remaining amount is the amount we need to grow. What this does is it starts pretty similar as the other portfolio construction and rebalancing methods. But what it challenges is this, is it challenges the question of do you base your portfolio decisions on the stock to bond ratio? So do you base your portfolio decisions on having some percentage in stock 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, whatever the percentage is, and the remaining amount in bonds or cash or some other conservative investment. Well, yes, you do that if your goal is some specific risk and return trade-off. And, and by the way, this is what most people do. And they say, okay, I want to have a 50-50 portfolio because I want to minimize the downside that I could possibly experience. Or I want to have an 80-20 portfolio because I want to get more growth but still have somewhat of a downside cap on what this portfolio might do. Now, the answer to do you base your portfolio decisions on the stock to bond ratio, to me, the answer is no, if your goal is to engineer a portfolio to your particular situation. And it works if you come at it from this standpoint, the standpoint that says, number one, I want to grow my money. 
Number two, I understand that to grow my money, I have to accept some uncertainty, which in the stock market is just measured by volatility. So the ups and downs of the market. Number three, I can't afford for 100% of my money to be invested in volatile assets because I'm living on those funds. So yes, I know that I grow my money by accepting more uncertainty and volatility, but I can't have 100% of my money there because I need some money to live on even when the stock market is taking a downturn. So then number four, I need to have a cushion amount to protect against this volatility. I need to have some funds that provide stability, some liquidity, the access to live on money even when the stock market's going through a downturn. And then number five, the rest of my money, outside of the cushion amount, the rest of it is the amount that I need to grow. And really, that's the amount that's protecting against the loss of purchasing power that inflation is causing if too much money is in that cushion amount. Okay, now you may be sitting here saying, James, I'm really trying to figure out what's so different than having some money in bonds and some money in stocks. Okay, maybe that's a 60-40 portfolio or an 80-20 portfolio. What's the difference? The difference is the weight doesn't stay the same always. So that 60-40 weight or that 80-20 weight or that 100-0 weight, whatever it is, the allocation of stocks to bonds, it doesn't stay the same under this type of an approach. Let's see what I mean. Let's assume you have a million dollars. Let's assume that of that million dollars, you need to have $400,000 in a cushion fund to give you enough years of stability, of liquidity, of money you can live on, even if there's a terrible bear market and you don't have to worry about going back to work. You could just live on the cushion fund, the more conservative portion. Okay, so that's 400,000, which under this assumption means the remaining 600,000 would be invested for growth. That would give you a 60-40 portfolio. Okay, so far, this is the exact same as anything else. You come up with the right amount in bonds and the right amount in stocks, and then you put some title on it. Call it 60-40 here. Well, let's assume your portfolio miraculously goes up five times overnight. And now instead of having $1 million, you have $5 million. Should you be in a 60-40 portfolio? Well, yes, if the way you structure your portfolio is like we talked about above. If you're basing your portfolio decisions on some stock to bond ratio, which is typically to minimize some downside experience, then yes, if you're in a 60-40 portfolio at a million dollars, you'd still be in a 60-40 portfolio at $5 million. But if your goal is to grow your portfolio while still keeping a stable portion of your portfolio in that stable investment to protect against downturns, then no, you would not still have the same 60-40 portfolio. If your lifestyle stayed the same in this example, but your portfolio went up in value five times, you still only need that $400,000 of a cushion fund to provide protection against what the stock market could do. But anything above that $400,000, well, that's now $4.6 million, $4,600,000 as opposed to being just the $600,000 that it was when your portfolio was $1 million. So now as we're looking at this, instead of having 60% stocks, 40% bonds, we're looking at 92% stocks, 8% bonds. The difference here is pretty dramatic when you look at it from that perspective, but it's similar from the standpoint of you still have enough of a cushion, you still have enough conservative investments to protect against a really terrible bear market, allowing the rest of your portfolio to continue to grow. So you're listening to this maybe and you think, okay, this is great, I get it, but what on earth does that have to do with rebalancing? What with those two rebalancing options that we talked about before, whether it's calendar rebalancing or threshold rebalancing, you are constantly coming back to some fixed allocation or some specific allocation of how much in stocks, how much in bonds to keep it simple. With this type of an approach though, 
the goal of rebalancing isn't to constantly come back to that 40% or that 60-40 allocation or that 70-30 allocation, or that 80-20 allocation. The goal is to have a fixed amount in your cushion fund, a fixed amount that's going to be insulated from the ups and downs of the market and something very conservative. But then as the portfolio rises or falls, you're adjusting the risky side. So that allocation of stocks, that's going to be more of a dynamic allocation based upon what's happening with the total value of the portfolio so that you're always keeping some minimum level of cushion there to give you the flexibility and the protection you need. But any excess amounts are going to be invested in a different way. So that's typically at least an approach I always want to work through with clients to say, okay, what does this look like? Not just what 60, 40 or 80, 20 allocation do you need, but what portfolio can you engineer to both protect against the downside of what a bad bear market could do, but also allow your portfolio to continue growing for you. And when you're doing that, you're not doing the calendar rebalancing or the threshold rebalancing. It's more of a figuring out what's the specific conservative amount that I want to have at all times. And then you're rebalancing within the growth portion to make sure that your portfolio stays in balance. So as I said at the beginning, this can be a pretty basic conversation of how do I rebalance and when should I be doing it? There's also some nuances to it. In the calendar rebalancing and threshold rebalancing, a lot of people talk about that. A lot of people do it. And it's kind of the textbook answer to this. That third method of keeping a cushion amount, the variation of the insurance structure of a constant proportion portfolio insurance, I like that. I think that that is more specific and unique to your particular goals but it does take some more planning and it takes more understanding of how can we align my portfolio with my financial goals and the income I needed to create and what I needed to do. But if done, that can be a really effective way to look at this as well. So with that, I really appreciate this question, Dave. Thank you for submitting that question. If you are listening and have a question that you would like for me to answer, please feel free to reach out and send that. And you can do that by going to the Ready for Retirement website. It's readyforretirement.co. And there's a page called Submit Your Question. A lot of questions as they come in, I do receive all of them and read all of them. I'm not able to answer all of them on every single episode. I kind of group them and say, okay, at what point does it make sense to answer each question? But I do look at all of those and this is how a lot of these episodes are created. So if you have a question, feel free to reach out. Thank you as always for listening and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Ready for Retirement podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let me know by leaving a five-star review. And as always, for a list of the notes and the resources mentioned in today's episode, you can find those at the Ready for Retirement website, which is readyforretirement.co. That's readyforretirement.co. And if you have a question that you would like for me to answer in a future episode, then you can also go to the Ready for Retirement website, readyforretirement.co. There's a page called Submit Your Question where you can submit a question for me to answer in a future episode. Thanks as always for listening, and I'll see you next time. Hey everyone, it's me again for the disclaimer. Please be smart about this. Before doing anything, please be sure to consult with your tax planner or financial planner. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, tax, legal, or other financial advice. It is for informational purposes only.